Welcome to Smarticus History. All right, enough with the echo and fanfare. You're here for history, right? And not that boring crap you learned in high school. This stuff's actually interesting. Like things you've never heard about the Civil War, Cleopatra, automobiles, Monopoly, the Black Plague, and more. Fascinating stories, interesting topics, and some downright weird facts from the past. It's a new twist on some stories you may know, and an interesting look at some things you may have never heard. So, grab a beer, kick back, and enjoy. Here's your host, Smarticus. Welcome back to Smarticus Tells History. This week, we are talking about one of the most influential and inspiring brains of all time. Yes, that's right. Brains. Albert Einstein's most valuable possession was pried right out of his cranium following his death, resulting in a scandalous medical theft that has a long and sordid tale to accompany it. When most of us die, our wishes for what will become of our bodies are followed carefully by our loved ones. Or so we hope. Some people wish to donate their viable organs, others their entire bodies, while others desire a quiet cremation with little care as to where their ashes are scattered to the winds. It's usually easy to ensure these wishes are followed. After all, we are but mere mortals, and there's not much value left in our flesh after we depart this plane. But what happens when you are one of the most influential thinkers in history? Do you owe any part of your earthly remains to the world? That's what one pathologist thought when he found himself, by complete chance, in a morgue containing what was the most brilliant mind known at the time, and that was the brain of Albert Einstein. Einstein left a legacy that will never be forgotten. Born in Ulm, Germany in 1879, Einstein was educated in Switzerland, where he trained as a teacher in physics and mathematics in Zurich before obtaining his doctorate. He was a remarkable academic, serving in esteemed institutions like the University of Berlin and Princeton. As we know, he made many crucial contributions to the fields of science and math, including the special theory of relativity, investigations on the theory of Brownian movement, and the development of the quantum theory and general theory of relativity. Einstein was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1921 for his services to theoretical physics and especially for his discovery of the law of the photoelectric effect. He received numerous other scientific awards, and his work went on to influence nearly every aspect of modern life as we know it. Up until his death, Einstein was searching for a simple, cohesive theory that could explain space and time. On April 17, 1955, Einstein experienced internal bleeding caused by an abdominal aortic aneurysm rupture. Rushed to the University Medical Center of Princeton with a draft of his speech for the seventh anniversary of the State of Israel, Einstein refused surgery upon his arrival. I want to go when I want, he said. It is tasteless to prolong life artificially. I have done my share. It is time to go. I will do it elegantly. He died early the following day at the age of 76. Although he hadn't planned on passing before his work was complete, he had not overlooked the possibility either. Einstein left behind specific instructions regarding his remains. He wanted his body to be cremated and then scattered discreetly in a secret location to discourage idolaters. He particularly did not want his brain studied, feeling there is no scientific benefit from such an undertaking, as no two brains are identical to begin with. What could be gained from worshipping a brain? 
On call the morning of April 18, 1955, was pathologist Dr. Thomas Harvey. The 42-year-old physician had high hopes for his success in the medical field, but after a promising start studying at Yale University under the esteemed Dr. Harry Zimmerman, a pioneer in the study of diseases of the nervous system, his rise to the top was impeded. Harvey contracted tuberculosis during his third year of study and spent the following year bedridden in a sanatorium. By the time he recovered and returned to his work, Harvey felt left behind and disappointed. So, when he was summoned to perform the autopsy on Albert freaking Einstein, he had a glimmer of hope. Instead of being allowed to burn to ash, this brain on the morgue table in front of him could be his ticket to medical superstardom. And so, the next day, Einstein's son, Hans Albert, learned that his father's body had been cremated in Trenton, New Jersey, sands of vital peace. Albert Einstein's brain had been pulled from his sawed-open cranium and ferreted away by Dr. Harvey. Hans Albert was understandably furious. But the sly Dr. Harvey convinced Albert that his father's brain truly did belong to science in order to shed light on one of nature's greatest mysteries, the secret of geniusness. Albert gave a reluctant retroactive blessing with the strict stipulation that any investigations would be conducted solely in the interest of science with their findings published in the most reputable scientific journals. Harvey was not a neurologist, but promised to gather the best experts in America to study the brain and report their findings. But Harvey soon lost his job at Princeton. Perhaps it was because they weren't that wild about him burglarizing their bodies. And the brain went with him. Years passed with no mentions of the brain in any medical text or journals, and eventually it was largely forgotten. Then, in 1978, a young reporter named Stephen Levy was tasked by his editor to track down the missing organ. Levy found Harvey in Wichita, Kansas, and after much reluctance, the doctor agreed to a meeting. The men met at Harvey's small lab where Levy was shocked to discover he still hoped to publish a scientific report on the body part. According to Levy, Harvey was an introverted, polite man who was bursting with pride at his possession of Einstein's brain, but could offer no answers on why nothing had been published after nearly 25 years. Levy asked to see photos of the brain, and was stupefied when instead Harvey fished out two mason jars from a beer cooler in the corner of his office and handed them over. Inside was Einstein's brain. Levy described it as a conch shell-shaped mass of wrinkly material the color of clay after firing. A fist-sized chunk of grayish lined substance, the apparent consistency of a sponge. And in a separate pouch, a mass of pinkish-white strings resembling bloated dental floss. In the second jar, there was dozens of rectangular translucent blocks the size of Goldenberg's peanut chews. Then, with the pieces of the most extraordinary scientific brain in history floating between them, the two men set about telling the story of its last 23 years. After losing his job at Princeton, Harvey had taken the brain to Philadelphia, where, along with Einstein's executor, Otto Nathan, and Dr. Zimmerman, Harvey had overseen the sectioning of the brain into 240 blocks. He created 12 sets of 200 slides containing tissue samples indexed into the blocks. 
He weighed and photographed the brain and even commissioned a painting of it. Then, he sent the samples off to the greatest minds in neuropathology, just as he had promised. For himself, he kept the rest of the brain bits, preserved in celloidin, a hard and rubbery form of cellulose, in two jars. He tucked them in the basement and waited to see what others would say about their brain samples. He found little of note when examining the brain, but was holding out hope that experts in the field of neuroscience would turn up results that flung him into the limelight by association. But the men he had sent the samples to agreed with his findings. Einstein's brain was no different from other normal, non-genius brains. Undeterred, Harvey continued ferrying bits of the brain all over the U.S. while retaining its bulk for himself. Harvey worked as a medical supervisor in a biological testing lab in Wichita, Kansas. He kept the brain in a cider box stashed under a beer cooler after his ex-wife threatened to throw it out if he didn't dispose of it. It was there that Levy found him, and the resulting article made him the center of attention for a brief time. The journal Science interviewed him. Reporters camped out on his lawn, and he was approached for samples by dozens of scientists. One such expert was neuroanatomist Marion Diamond at the University of California, Berkeley. Harvey sent Diamond four sugar cube-sized pieces of the brain in a craft Miracle Whip jar, and the study of Einstein's brain was finally off and running. Diamond's paper on the findings, published in Experimental Neurology in 1985, was the first. Diamond identified one of the four brain samples as having more glial cells for every neuron compared to control group brains. In previous studies, Diamond has shown that a stimulating environment could increase glial cell count in rats. Diamond proposed that the low ratio of neurons to glial cells in Einstein's brain sample reflected a life devoted to the most stimulating scientific puzzles on offer. Five more studies followed, with the most recent published in 2014. They all reported additional differences in individual cells, or in particular structures of Einstein's brain. Each claimed to offer insight into the neurological underpinnings of intelligence. But, as pointed out by Professor of Psychology Terence Hines of Pace University, each study was deeply flawed. In the first, the control group of 11 brains belonged to people aged 47 to 80, while Einstein was 76. Additionally, those brains had been fresh, whereas Einstein's had spent nearly three decades in a beer cooler. And perhaps most problematic of all, the researchers counting cells were not blind to which tissue cells was Einstein's and which was not. A 1996 study that counted neurons in Einstein's Broadman Area 9 which is a part of the frontal cortex, found that while there was no difference in the number or size of neurons, Einstein's tissue was thinner than that of the five control brains. The authors speculated that more densely packed neurons would mean shorter cell-to-cell messaging distance, allowing Einstein to process faster. But those findings were based on a square millimeter of Einstein's brain, and the authors failed to report any of the ways in which Einstein's brain was similar to the controls. In 1999, a study on Einstein's brain appeared in one of the world's most prestigious medical journals, The Lancet. Based on photographs of the brain, this paper proposed that Einstein had an abnormal folding pattern in the part of his parietal lobe linked to mathematical ability. 
The study also reported that his parietal lobes were 15% wider and more symmetrical than those of control brains. Again, the researchers in the study were not blind to what brain was Einstein's, and in truth, Einstein struggled greatly with much of the mathematics required to prove his theories. The most recent study focused on identifying differences across the entire brain, noting an unusually thick corpus callosum, among other things. But Terence Hines is adamant that these findings, like all the others, result from the neuromythology surrounding Einstein's brain. Likely, many think, we are so desperate to unlock the proverbial key to Einstein's genius that we are grasping at straws while trying to find uniqueness in an organ that is inherently unique to each individual. Perhaps scientists should finally honor Einstein's wishes and let his brain rest in peace. As for the brain itself, it remains incomplete and in pieces. Harvey was fond of slicing off bits to give away as morbid souvenirs. Before his death in 2007, Harvey handed over the 170 remaining chunks of the brain to Dr. Elliot Krauss, chief pathologist at the University Medical Center of Princeton, where he had stolen it from. In 2011, the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia received a box of slides made by Harvey which became the only permanent exhibition of Einstein's brain in the world. A second box went to the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Silver Spring, Maryland, but they are only put on display occasionally. As far as anyone knows, Krauss is still carefully watching over the rest of Einstein's brain. Let us hope that it is in a nicer resting place than a beer cooler. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Smarticus Tells History. If you are interested in helping our podcast grow, please consider donating to the show on PayPal. And if you are thinking of starting your own podcast, you can do so with ease on Buzzsprout. Check the link in the show notes to get started today. Thanks for listening to Smarticus Tells History. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review and make sure to subscribe. And be sure to follow the show at facebook.com slash History. Or just click the link in the show description. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.